This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Marlon James, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Moon Witch Spider King is the second volume of the Dark Star trilogy, and Sogolon, the Moon Witch, is center stage in this book. She does make quite an appearance in Black Leopard, Red Wolf, but you've been clear from the beginning that you were going to use three volumes to tell three different versions of the same story. So when did you start working on this one? Were you working on it in tandem with Black no. Leopard? Okay. Not at all, because one of the things I had to remember is though, even though I know what Trekker told everybody in the previous book, Sogolan does not. So it's, it's a very easy trick to simply write something that ends up sort of accidentally in conversation with the book before. But I'm like, but she didn't hear the conversation. So I almost had to forget everything tracker did. There are certain things where I actually didn't double check for accuracy until like four drafts in. Because I knew if I started using the previous book as a reference, then this just becomes a response to the previous book. And Sutherland is bigger than that. You know, oh, yeah, she, like, she doesn't even know his testimonies and Lord knows she doesn't care. Mm -hmm. I had to put myself in a frame of mind that this was the first book as opposed to the second and what is important to her outside of the context of merely proving she's telling the truth, or more importantly, proving that Tracker is lying, is that, oh, I don't even care about his story. And the story itself, Tracker doesn't appear until pretty late, which just emphasizes the point that her version is just nothing to do with his. But weird enough, this is absolutely 100% a COVID book. Okay. I started writing it when the whole thing flared up. And it's also one of the quickest books I've written, actually. Only Book of Night Woman was quicker. Um, uh -huh. So it was, this was around 18 months. But, you know, they weren't the same. They weren't, it, 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 Lord knows none of us were going through the past, the usual 18 months. So not only did I have a lot of time on my hands, but I also turned this book as an escape. What am I going to be locked in a room wearing a mask and hearing about rising body counts or go write about witches? I'm going to escape to that fantastical world. That's what happened. It was really my confinement book. Yeah, I love this line. The only difference between who is a witch and who is not is one man's mouth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't necessarily always try to land a shot in the contemporary world, but I don't think people realize that there's still camps in a lot of African countries of women who are hiding out because they're called witches and they're driven from marriages because the husband doesn't want them anymore or they're persecuted, some of them beaten, some of them killed. It's still a thing. And I'm not, not that I'm trying to score a contemporary point, but that line is still one of those things that I knew, for me at least, resonates. But isn't that what literature is supposed to do anyway? Aren't we holding yeah. up a mirror to who we are, even if you are writing this fantastical world mm -hmm. that you've set all the rules for, but is based in African mythology and folklore? Yeah, well, one of the things I realize about writing these two stories is the more fantastic you get is almost the more true it has to be. And that's not something new. There's a reason why all our old stories are fantastical and mythological and why our fairy tales are so old. Because I think there is something in these mythologies and these folklore stories that tell us something about ourselves. And we've always done it. We've always put in the fantastical to explain the real. We've always done it. Sometimes it's, how else are we going to explain evil? How else are we going to explain those random things that don't necessarily make physical sense? We've always done it. 
the one few things about this book that didn't surprise me was that some of the stuff that Sogla would be talking about would be stuff that resonate with us in the present. You also start the new book with quite a lot of court intrigue. Sogalon mm-hmm. finds herself in the palace, but it's a very different opening, obviously, mm-hmm. and it's a different world. And I think there's a nod there to, I don't want to say social realism per se, because mm-hmm. it is still a court, mm-hmm. but it is a different way for you to start this book. Did you know this is where you needed to start this story? No, actually, because the real page one, it's now on page 384. I literally, I thought the novel was starting at C and I was really into it because I'm like, oh my God, I get to write a C year and I've waited so many years to do that. I know all these ship things and I, I know where the mast is and, uh, you know, port and starboard. I'm going to use all of this. And that's not what happened. Funny enough, uh, my second novel, where I started in a certain present tense, went to a flashback and realized actually I'd rather be in the flashback. And the flashback was, um, you know, Sutherland's childhood. And how she goes from house of ill repute to royal house. And in, in writing, I was, no, this is where I want to go. But I knew I was going to get there because I also always wanted to write a royal intrigue novel because um, it's no secret how obsessed I am with Woolfall and, um, and the fifth queen. It's funny because most of my times I scream at royals. Every time I watch The Crown, at some point I have to go, but these people are monsters. Why am I watching this? Then I watch it. <laughs> But I knew I wanted to do something far removed from how Tracker's story begins. I've always been fascinated by royal intrigue and the backbiting and the skullduggery. It's not just Wolf Hall. I also reread Rose Tremaine's Restoration, which is one of my favorite novels. And this is part of me that connected personally, although I've never met a royal. And who wants to really? <laughs> but being... Royal adjacent, but not royal. Like, I've been rich adjacent, but not rich. I remember all my rich friends are like, let's go to Salt Beach and party. And I'm like, yay. And then one week later, I'm in a debt that takes me two years to pay off. So I kind of feel it. And that's what she is. She is among people who she will never belong to. And and I really wanted to write about how you get caught in these customs and realizing, one, just how human they are, but their flaws carry consequences. Sugglan mistake may hurt Sugglan. A princess's mistake hurts dozens of people. That's when I knew that's where the novel began. Also, the whole court, too. I mean, Sugglan is at the mercy of gossip. She's at mm-hmm. the mercy of other people's beliefs. She doesn't control her story at all. Mm-hmm. No. And that's, that's, it's kind of, you know, it's something she never gets used to. She develops almost a kind of a rage. The only, um, Sort of solace in a way is learning to read, but she doesn't understand it. She doesn't understand people who say things that mean something else. I mean, she learns, <laughs> but you know, or um, what it takes to be hell, just a king and succession, and and just also cruelty and the way in which people really, with one word, can have full sway of your life, including taking it. And you're almost kind of nothing. She is exiled at one point from the court and you have a level of detail. And I realize this is an entirely invented world. You have drawn all of the maps that Mm. exist in these books, but you have this one line where Sogolon says she learned everything she needed to know about palace intrigue from the horses. 
that were coming and going because people were asking and when they were asking, not necessarily where they were going. She wasn't always told where they were going, Mm -hmm. but the idea that specific people would ask for a specific horse at a Mm -hmm. specific time. She's noticing a lot. It's just, she's trying to put the pieces together. And this brings me back to something that you've said in other interviews where you like the why done it more than the who done it. Because you can't answer why with one word. Right. It's a deeper question, isn't it? It's what we always do when people do things. We go, I want to know why. In fact, sometimes I don't even want to know why. I want to know how. I always tell my students, you know, look, I don't want to hear a story about why your parents are getting divorced. I want to see how they fell apart. And I think that Sogol is kind of doing both. And she starts to, this may be a consequence of me reading things like the things they carried a little too much. (laughs) Or Paul Theroux's Patagonia Express where there's a scene in Patagonia Express where the person is only seeing people from basically the waist or the knee down. So all he's seeing is shoes and bags and so on. And I can tell you everything, can tell you who's going to work, who's going home, who doesn't have anywhere to go to. But the other thing is, is Sagan is also realizing that these people are actually, they're not hard to figure out. Also because the thing about royals, which people don't realize, is they're actually not a deep bunch. And, and part of it, too, is they don't have to be. I think Sagan also realizes that. You know, when she realizes the princess really has no life skills, and it's because she never really had to. Uh, think about what the level of which these people don't have to do anything. You know, and the kind of handicap, to bring back an old word. But Sagan realizes how you can figure people out by what they use, what they discard what they have regard for, what they don't. And also, yeah, and also how people regard them. It gets to the point where she knows what happened at a a horse from a visiting person comes to the stable but never leaves. You know, people in power obviously don't want anyone else to figure out what they're up to. Mm -hmm. And she puts the pieces together quickly and puts herself in danger. She ends up living with a man who already has a wife. Mm -hmm. But she is fighting as a man Mm -hmm. she is and this is all before she hits the road you have put into place all of these pieces but a minute ago you said it was about the how and the why and now i'm wondering what was the bigger driver for you i mean was it the how that she ends up here because there is so much that happens in the Mm -hmm. first half of the book before she even becomes really the woman we know, or as she says, I stop being a woman and I become folklore. Mm -hmm. I think it's sort of both. The reason why I say how is that she's trying to become somebody. One of her earliest memories is the beauty, the power, the violence, and the freedom of stick fighting. And in a way, she becomes almost most herself by becoming a stick fighter. At one point, somebody very close to her mentions, I know you haven't stopped. Even with more at stake, even with more to lose, even with so many people depending on you, I know you're still doing it. When she's stick fighting, she's not Sogolon at all. I remember once my, <laughs> my therapist asked me, where do you put your anger? And I couldn't answer. And I don't know if that was inspiring when I wrote Sogolon, but I was like thinking, where does she put her anger? She has a lot to be angry about. And I think that's where she puts it. And when the, even when the stakes get higher and higher and bloodier and deadlier, she's still there because that's where she puts her anger. That's where she puts her rage. I mean, we could have a whole podcast about women and rage. Yes, please. <laughs>
the added stigma if you're a woman of color. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, I don't say it in the book, but I was thinking one of the reasons why the people who she's concerned about leave her to do it is they want to, what would happen if they don't? So it is still work, me working out through her, well, where do you put all these things that you have? How do you deal with all of that? And if she were a man, nobody would think twice about that. That's so exactly the thing, oh, it's like Fight Club. It was um, a constantly figuring out why she's doing the things she's doing and how she manages to do them. And also the tools that she has. Sometimes a girl want to break stuff. Oh, yes. You know, <laughs> I was very taken by how, one, how angry she was and what she does about it. And she probably already knows to keep her thumbs on the outside of her fists rather than wrapping them in her fingers. That's my guess. so i have a question from a bookseller in kansas city talking about the structure of the novel Mm -hmm. and the idea that you've worked with all of this mythology you've worked with all of this folklore she's sogalon is an amazing voice but did you feel any pressure as you were creating this book to hew somehow to storytelling constraints that you weren't necessarily thinking about yes and no funny things happen when you start to research old stories and you realize a lot of what we give old stories are wrapped for are not in the stories. A lot of that is, honestly, quite frankly, Christianity. Just look at the evolution of Snow White. There, some of these stories, like when I go back to a lot of old African epics, some of them are starring women, including one with a cannibal witch. And that girl is gangster. <laughs> so I didn't feel, I necessarily feel, and I should hew to fantasy conventions or storytelling conventions. I think one of the reasons why I didn't is because I'm a still a big believer that when you write a novel, for me at least, I throw the story to the characters. And when characters become people, they should surprise and they should disappoint. Both of which Sutherland does to me at certain points. And I have to remember also, these things I've been telling myself every day is like, you know, it's a fantasy for you. It's not a fantasy for the people in the book. Yes, you have dragons, and I was very happy to have dragons in this book, finally. But, you know, it's, it's still people dealing with love and hope and betrayal and disappointment and hurt and laughter and having, making sure all of those things are in there. I didn't think I was in a situation where it was either or. This novel is more fantastical than Black Leopard. As I said, this novel actually has dragons in it. <laughs> but at the same time, and this is because of reading a lot of the research, one of the things we should remember you know, is that a lot of what we considered fantastical was considered real at one point. Mythology, Thor was real at one point, which is, I know things we consider that real. The characters had to move in the world as if that is, you know, that is what reality is. You know, they're still dealing with all these very human things. I knew there is a way to get all the gut truths and all the human truths I wanted, but still have things that go bump in the night, beasts that fly, fantastic voyages, and really, really big monsters. I mean, I think something that people forget, and especially when you see the coverage of Black Leopard, Red Wolf, and what I'm sure will happen with the coverage too for Moon Witch, Spider King, Steinbeck wrote a pirate novel. Steinbeck Mm -hmm. loved The Legend of Arthur. I mean, he was working on a retelling that was published posthumously, but- This is the dude who wrote Grapes of Wrath and East of Eden, personal favorite. Actually, I think it's the best Steinbeck, but we can have that conversation at another time. We don't have to fight over that. It's definitely the better novel. Thank you. You should come on our podcast as a guest. I (laughs) love that show so much. You guys have so much fun. 
but dead authors being the key. And, mm. you know, Steinbeck also is someone who I think has held up better than some authors that we consider yeah. canon. Francine de Pesic's grace said this one says, reject the tyranny of genre. Can you imagine telling Marquez, well, you know, you should stick to such and such. Or telling um, Toni Morrison that she can't use folklore as a jump. There are writers I read because of their focus. There are people who like, this is what I want to write about. And that's all I want to write about. And some people are really good at that. There is something to be said for being very omnivorous about story. Back in the day when the only place you're going to find a novel are those paperbacks in the airport. Mm -hmm. And paperbacks in the airport would be like Arthur Haley Airport or um, Harold Robbins, The Carpetbaggers. Or honestly, this is what would happen. And I, and I really should do a story about it. They would um, reissue paperbacks in those sort of romance novel kind of covers. That's how I got into East of Eden. I thought I was going to read something way more dirty. Because of the way in which these things were packaged. Of course, I'm talking about the 70s and 80s. I ended up being widely read almost by accident. Mm -hmm. And I think... Faulkner says, read everything, even the bad stuff, read everything. And I think that's the thing with Steinbeck. A lot of my favorite writers, even if they don't write about certain things, they read certain things. Um, the most unlikely books have an effect on me. I was telling somebody only a couple of days ago that there's uh, the opening pages in Black and Red Wolf was actually inspired by me reading Kate Tempest. Okay. God help what happened to the pages after every time I read Virginia Woolf. <laughs> It's um to, to come back to Steinbeck, because I found this as well with me. If you're really interested in stories, sooner or later, you start to go back. Sooner or later, a rock musician is going to have to find the blues. And to me, it takes me right back to stories that were meant to be listened to instead of read. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, you know, changed a lot for me. And for me, it's still very important for me to um, write stories that are meant to be heard aloud. So that's why I'm such an apostle of audiobooks. A good audiobook actually mm -hmm. is great. But you also have this line that I really, really love. And it's from an old interview, actually, with uh, Toti Onibuchi. Mm -hmm. And you say, truth is the job of the reader. It's not my job mm -hmm. to convince you that I'm telling the truth. And I love that because I do believe every reader brings their own story to whatever they're reading. Mm -hmm. I just get really frustrated as a reader and a bookseller, when people get snotty about genre. I, and I don't get it. I mean, we could have solved this cultural appropriation thing 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I just said, people, go read the crime guys. I don't have this problem with them. I've never had a problem with the crime guys because the crime guys do the work. When I'm teaching nonfiction, I write this thing on my wall, WWBD, which is What Would Boo Do? All of you, read Behind the Beautiful Forevers by Catherine Boo. Uh -huh. What Would Boo Do? Yep. No, and we have... Totally run out of superlatives for that book. Yeah. And the Beautiful Forevers is actually a perfect, perfect narrative structure. Listen to her interviews. And when she talks about doing the work, and I think that's what people don't do. You do, you know, do the work. The crime people do the work. Doing the work, though, is exactly what you did to create the Dark Star trilogy. And actually, somehow Fab Five Freddy and Facebook are involved. And yes. The, and the librarians of Timbuktu, wait. Can we start there? Because I have other questions. But Fab Five Freddy, who it's, it's is the way, bomb? People don't, oh my God, I love him so much. One of the things I always tell my students is you don't create stories, you find them. And this is how I found it. So Fred had this Facebook post where he put up these photos of this photographer doing this imagined version of the Orishas, you know, the African deities. And they're done in these really 
amazing sort of sci-fi fantasy kind of way, very gorgeous, glamorous. And as somebody who is obsessed with mythology, I can t- it's not just I can talk about pretty much any mythology. I never saw African deities in a way that I thought, oh my God, these guys look like X-Men. They just looked like characters waiting to happen. I didn't use them for the same reason why I wouldn't use Jesus or Buddha as a character, because I think these are deities that are real and actively worshipped, and I'm not going to jump into that disrespect. But it was me realizing that almost my entire language for fantasy, not all of it, because I read a lot of, this my literary language of fantasy, my visual language of fantasy has a lot of Korean and, and Japanese and Chinese forms. But my literary was still basically, and I don't mean to mean dismissive, but it really was a lot of European medieval stories with dragons in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As I said, these are some of my favorite novels. But after a while, yeah, you do start to wonder why people like yourself are not in them. And it's not even that yourself wants to go, God, I wish a black person was in this novel. But there is a sense of ownership and recognition and so on when you see people like yourself in the stories you love the most. Otherwise, you, there is still a sort of a outside love, which is not a problem. I mean, that's 90% of the literature we've always read and grown up with. I mean, that's Steinbeck, yeah? To contend with fantasy is to contend with, in a lot of ways, the most Eurocentric of all the genres. That's not a takeaway with, from writers like Tochi and, um, you know, a fantastic series like The Popular or all the great stuff Sophia Samatar has been doing or... Kaya Shanti Wilson, who, you know, brings a, a really interesting contemporary um, and sometimes queerish take on it, which I absolutely love. But we are all sort of chafing against, honestly, the literature we, we know and love. You know, it's funny, one of the things I realized when writing, researching rather this novel, is the further back you go, the stories is the so, the, how similar they are. We all have dragons. We all have the serpent eating its tail. We all have a flood myth, which a lot of people call a flood fact. And we all have these real and three-dimensional characters. At one point, it was just this sort of explosion of riches. And I'm like, God, what should I write first? That's That's one of the reasons why it became three novels. There's just so much to write. How much of this is you writing the books and the books writing you? Lord, if I knew the answer to that, <laughs> the best way to answer that is this is a reason why the first page I wrote is now on page 384. Mm-hmm. I do start out writing the books. I've done it with every novel and I've failed every single time. And then the book kind of start writing me and I go, oh, so that's the beginning. If, you know, 50, 100 years from now, if people are still reading me, they're going to have the extended version with all the false start novels that lead to the actual novels. Because almost every book I have have a false start novel. My longest false start novel is around 500 pages. Seriously? Well, you know, after a while, you just realize, okay, this ain't it. <laughs> wow. I wish I had a more efficient way of doing it. But I do write towards figuring out what I want to write. So John because- Didion. Yeah, because I have tried the whole, and I do it all the time. I mean, there are stacks and stacks and stacks of notebooks because I'm trying to plan my way through this thing and I have it down. And then I start writing and by page 50, I'm like, this ain't it. And this is something which I try to tell my students when they get very frustrated. They're, they're afraid of writing 10 pages and that's not it. 
So like when I wrote the first, um, what is this now? Maybe 25, 30 pages of Moonwish Spider King and realized that wasn't it. I was overjoyed because I got something down on paper. I still ended up using it. It's now on page 384. But it was, I had to write my way to figuring out what I want to write. And I could have written those 20 pages and been nowhere. That would have been terrible. Instead, I wrote those 20 pages and go, oh, no, I know what I want to write. Actually, when you were looking for that line on page 384, I thought you were heading to 392. There's a line that I marked that I thought, oh, this could be the opening of the book. You think this story is about revenge. This is about the divine order of goodness and plenty and how we lose our way. Mm-hmm. And it goes from there. But as you can tell, I really sort of latched on to Sugalon and her story. I can't remember writing that line. Sugalon is kind of smart. (laughs) She has a lot going on. But, you know, you've talked in the past about some of your influences. I mean, Salman Rushdie's Shame is a touchstone for you. Ben Okri and the Famished Road. Mm -hmm. I love that book so much. I mean, there's a little bit of Ben floating around mm-hmm. in the back, um, wide Saragazzo see the Jane Rees and certainly mm-hmm. Toni Morrison across her body mm-hmm. of work. To an extent, this is a series about a superhero team. You know, they got their powers. Just make sure this, you know, Sutherland is not Storm. Make sure you watch where you're going with that. And I was like, to pull that back. It's like, she's not Storm. But Marlon, the thing that you do with voice and story And yes, I can feel sort of the episodic pieces and certainly, I mean, X-Men absolutely Mm -hmm. driven by story and character. But can we talk about voice for a second? Mm -hmm. Because voice is clearly something you latched onto as you had this very wide reading experience. And, you know, Steinbeck's over here. But the books that seem to really be touchstones for you, Catherine Boo, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, the voice in that book. Mm -hmm. Voice is very important to me because for a long time, a long time. I've been trying to write for a very long time. The thing that got in the way was voice. Mm-hmm. And even now, when I write like nonfiction, when I write in a certain standard English, I'm usually unhappy with what I write. It's not just why I'm sometimes afraid to write things like reviews. It's not that I don't have an opinion, but I'm afraid of my voice. I'm obsessed with voice because I've always looked at voice personally as an oppressive thing, not a liberating thing as something I have to work towards, as something I have to extinguish so I can sound proper. When I wrote my first novel in dialect, you know, in Patwa, people came after me. It's like, aren't you an English teacher? So I became drawn to novels that dared to think that the voice of the character or the voice of the narrator can be the voice of literature. The first one was, was Huckleberry Finn. I was like, people write books like this? And not just voice, what voice is that you don't have to have this sort of overarching, omniscient, third-person, voice-of-God kind of narrative, even though quite a few of my favorite novels, most of them Victorian or Russian, are like that. The reason why I gravitated to all these novels with strong voice or certainly strong narrative is because I wanted to figure out how to do it and how to do it in terms of I wanted to get over the shame of my own voice recognizing that that voice has a story to tell as well. And that people always ask me, what do I bring of myself in a novel? Well, every now and then I'll bring stuff that I want to get off my chest. But it really is voice. It's really, it's the, the voice coming out of, my, out of my head to be the voice of the story. And some other things happen when you, you, try, you, you write a novel of voice. You start to control volume. And I like volume control. And uh, that's things that draws me to Toni Morrison so much. 
volume control. There are certain lines in Sula that you know that's a whisper. And you know some are shout and some are scream. And she doesn't have to say she whispered. And she doesn't have to put it in all caps. And it have to put 15 exclamation points. It's always a hell of a thing when I give my students a test. Not a test. But the first assignment usually is, I want a 100-word sentence. You're not allowed to use any punctuation. And I need to know every range of emotion that I'm feeling. I'll give you one comma. No italics, no exclamation points. No, he shouted. No, they were angry. I want everything you should tell me without any of that. That's usually when a third of the class drops the class. But, <laughs> but it's, it's because when your voice, when voice is on point, when voice is working, you get all of that without any of that. So, yeah, I became, I, I became obsessed with novels that are driven by voice because it, it took me a while to trust my own. Voice to me as a reader is also about power and who has it and who doesn't and who wants it and who's mm -hmm. going to get there. And power, this could be someone's kitchen mm -hmm. in Pasadena in the 1950s. I mean, yeah. we have such limited definitions in some ways. And grammar too, I have always had this thing. I can diagram sentences. Mm -hmm. I can hold my own. But mm -hmm. grammar to me feels so classist and it's a bar to entry and it just makes me bananas. And I think, you know, certainly you need a standard to mm. a point, but voice actually steps in for that. Voice steps in for that. And also, you know, um, the thing I've realized and funny enough, it was doing research for this, these novels that made it concrete for me is, yeah, grammar is important, but which grammar? Sometimes when people are saying grammar, what they mean is, is standard English grammar. Mm -hmm. And everything else is a broken form of that because I thought I was speaking, you know, broken English. Case in point, in a lot of African languages, that I've come across is verbs are always present tense. Right. So there's no such word as went. He did go. He soon go. He can't go. He won't go. Even he going to go. I've always thought that was just improper English that when I'm speaking properly, I don't use. Not realizing that, no, it's the influence of my original voices that the slave ship didn't get rid of. That 400 years of oppression didn't burn out. We have to remember that we have other languages that we come from and are still within us. Sometimes the rules of voice is simply what sounds right. Mm -hmm. What did you learn writing Moon Witch Spider King? When Sutherland points out that sometimes the difference between a witch and who's not is whoever is saying it, that was something I learned. I didn't know that when I started writing the book. I learned that. You can go through one year like it's the longest year in the world and won't end. But then go through nearly 100 years in a blip. Also something I learned. 10 seconds can take 50 pages. Decades take a paragraph. Because Sogolon goes through the suspended present tense that won't end. But also the decades and decades that she can't account for. I had an idea when I started the book that... Um, Two people could see the same thing a different, a different way. What I didn't realize is that they may not even be looking at the same thing. That's why I said that Sogolon's story ultimately is not a response to Tracker's story. She couldn't care less. Some of it lines up. <laughs> That's more the, was more the careful work of my editor than me. <laughs> I recognized even if, if this were 400 pages in response to Tracker, then it would have failed. Because I wouldn't have given her agency. All I made her is a reactionary. And I had to remember that. It's like when people say post-colonial, which I understand. But 
post-colonial still puts colonial as the, the standard. And she's not, is this not a post-tracker book? Because yeah, and, I, and remembering that when telling people's stories, are you telling a story or are you, you know, just projecting your character on something and then reacting to it? She is absolutely her own woman. You don't have to have read Black Leopard, Red Wolf mm-hmm. to dive straight into the narrative. In fact, it had been quite some time actually since I had read yeah. Black Leopard, Red Wolf. And I was immediately centered in Sogolon's world, though, and she was all that I cared about. And it was this combination of voice and admittedly palace intrigue. Mm-hmm. I'm a little more a place of greater safety on the Hillary Mantel scale. <laughs> uh, I mean, I can't find that book at all. God, she's just so great. She's amazing. But mm-hmm. the idea that Sogolon is here in this world, and there are some beyond the dragons, there's some other things that happen with the natural world that we Mm -hmm. might take a step back from. But for her, she's focused on what she believes and what she needs to uncover. I want to stress this for readers who may not necessarily sit down with this, but there are echoes of not just Tolkien. And I mean, certainly people have used the African Game of Thrones line quite a lot. But as you said, there's Rose Tremaine. There's Hilary Mantel. There is a lot more happening here in ways that I think are very fun <laughs> and slightly yeah. unexpected. I love court intrigue as well. I love court intrigue novels. And I think there is something here for people who are into, who like that sort of sense of the, the court intrigue and the behind deals and the backstabbing and the succession and they all, all that sort of stuff. I'm not kidding when I tell people that, you know, Wolf was sitting on my desk the whole time. Um, and these novels and and it, because one i love the costume and finery and ceremony as much as everybody else i love the whole you know mad kings and plots and and skullduggery and all that of course i do i mean i keep thinking man can you imagine if the crown was actually set 200 years ago well there's an idea for the next season of the crown mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's a part of me that still likes that kind of costume drama storytelling type of thing of course I, of course i love it as long as you know the, the sort of the the gut truths and all those things you know still appear and we still know that this is somebody in a world she's at court she's not of the court and that you know that gives her a perspective that even she doesn't realize is more three-dimensional than everybody else's what was your playlist like for Moon Witch Spider King. Oh, wow. What was I listening to? I know for because so much of it was written last year. I was listening to this, this my, my favorite album last year. It's an album called Fatigue by the artist Lorraine. L apostrophe R-E-I-N. I was listening to that nonstop. I was listening to this UK band Salt, S-A-U-L-T. I was listening to the, the usual suspects, Coltrane, but Alice, not John. Lots and lots and lots of Alice Coltrane. It's weird. I didn't notice until you asked me the question. I was actually listening to a lot more, funny enough, male artists when I was writing Black Leopard. But it was more like, you know, Alice Coltrane and Lorraine. Every now and then, you know, Patti Smith, PJ Harvey. In fact, I think a PJ Harvey line stuck in there somewhere. I was like, how did this? I think somebody said, it's hard walking in a dress. It's not easy. It's like, oh, whoops. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't be listening to so much PJ Harvey while writing this. I also was listening to actually a lot of Brian Eno, the ambient stuff, and listening to Babatunde, Drums of Passion. You know, I listen to a lot, actually. Peter Gabriel's Passion soundtrack. 
Okay, that's a little trippy. I mean, I get the Gabriel part, but yeah. and I understand. I mean, it's orchestral. It's a film score. It's just wow. <laughs> I, <laughs> Having I a moment. I was listening a lot, and in many ways, it may be my favorite Peter Gabriel record. But yeah, that's what I was listening to. Did anything actually surprise you, though? Did Sogolon surprise you? I mean, you talk about writing until you get mm. to the start and mm-hmm. jettisoning those pages. I mean, that's clearly part of your process, but yeah. there has to be something where as you're going along, you have a moment where you're like, wow, that just happened. Oh my God. There are lots of moments with that. I still have it as a rule when I'm writing that, you know, every now and then you should end your writing day going, I didn't see that coming. There is a line in it where Sogolon says, I'm a woman with children. And I'm like, and she kind of says it kind of stunned. And I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of stunned too. Because this is one of many turns which I never thought I would never have expected. And I think part of it too is by throwing the novel to the characters, and I'm dreading the idea of writing a third person novel, honestly. <laughs> but by throwing the novel to the characters, I'm also open up to being surprised. Just seeing the direction that characters end up going, which I would not have anticipated despite writing pages and pages and books and books of notes. So there were moments constantly where I'm being surprised by her and by other characters in the book. So you have a series that's just been greenlit by HBO Max mm-hmm. set in Jamaica with an ex-Scotland Yard detective, mm-hmm. which I am dying to watch. I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> you also have your podcast with your editor, Marlon and Jake read dead people. Mm-hmm. I love that show and I cannot wait for it to come back. It's coming back. Shameless plug. It's coming back. Excellent. But when do you think we're going to see the third volume of Dark Star? Well, my publisher thinks it's 24. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it would be in 2024. Sneak peek of the title. It's called White Wing Dark Star. I'm not going to explain what that means because my publisher will be screaming. (laughs) Um, And yeah, the, the aim is for 2024. I'm very excited. I am very, very excited. Is there anything you wanted to cover that we didn't hit before I let you go back to your life, even though I would um, li- really like to hang out with you for four more hours? <laughs> um, no, I think one of, I mean, one thing, I mean, we already covered it, that you can really read these novels in any order um, you want. That was something that was very important to me, not just because I, I want to give people an entryway if they haven't read the first one. Okay, that's totally true. I definitely want an entryway if they haven't read the first one. <laughs> But also that, you know, I was being committed to the idea of the novel, which is it's not linear necessarily. It's three takes on what may be the same story, even though Sogolon clearly had other ideas. You know, you can read it in order. In fact, it's going to be interesting talking to people who've read this book first, as opposed to people who've read Black Leopard first. It's going to be interesting hearing from, let's call him Team Sogolon. I will say I'm definitely Team Sogolon, but, you know, (laughs) she's great. She's really, she is absolutely one of my favorite recent characters. She's just the bomb. Yeah. Marlon James, I could sit here and hang out with you for hours more, but you have a book to promote. (laughs) I have books to sell. (laughs) (laughs) Moon Witch Spider King is out now. Thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. And now it's time for your TBR top off this week on Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Uh, Welcome to the segment where we recommend three books to add to your to-be-read list based on today's interview with Marlon James and his new book, 
Moon Witch Spider King, which is number two in the Dark Star trilogy. As always, I am joined by Margie. Hello, Margie. Hi, James. How's it going? Um, it's frigid. Frigid. A little <laughs> chilly here in mid-February. <laughs> well, we hope you're staying warm. And we do have a special guest on the podcast today. Um, Jamie, hello. Hi, guys. How are you? Great. Great. Good to have you on with us. Tell us uh, about yourself and where you're from. Sure. My name is Jamie and I am from Kansas City, technically Leewood, Kansas, but nobody's ever heard of that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Kansas City Metro. And I order books for all the Barnes and Noble stores all around Kansas City. Oh, wonderful. I've heard about the uh, barbecue in Kansas City. With good reason. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) There's a barbecue joint right across the street from our store. Very famous when Kansas City goes. And uh, yeah, you can can smell it all day. You oh, this this is exciting. We're going to have a lot to talk about um, as we do people around the country. Jamie is the first person that we have done this with outside of Michigan. So it's so exciting. That's Who knew? true. That's, That's awesome. true. Oh, wow. We're going to get people from everywhere. This is gonna mm-hmm. cool. Well, Jamie, it's great to have you with us. Uh, we are going to recommend three books uh, for uh, folks to add to their TBR list. And Margie, why don't you take it away? I will indeed. And I'm very excited that the book that I wanted to talk about it's just squeaking in there. It comes out in paperback uh, February 8th. So here we go. It is called The Prophets. It's by Robert Jones Jr. Ooh. I know, right? So this was a National Book Award finalist. It's the story of two young men. They are slaves on a cotton plantation. They share a deep love and connection. And the only bright spot in their lives is each other. The rest of the slave community that is on their plantation, they pretty much know about their relationship, their special closeness, but they're kind of like, you know, whatever. (laughs) Okay, do you, (laughs) whatever you want to do. But this relationship becomes the focal point around which some pretty cataclysmic situations play out throughout the novel. But why I really thought about about this one is because Moon Witch Spider King is just drenched in this African mythology and spirituality. And this novel does an amazing job at showing the clash between the Native beliefs and the white expectations that these slaves had to face on their arrival in the United States. So by expectation, you know, you can pretty much read Christianity. And on this plantation, there is a group of older women who remember the old ways and continue to practice them. And there's a newer group of advocates for this new white religion. And the tension it creates amongst the slave population is one of the biggest catalysts for the events in the novel. It's a beautifully written story of love, but also of subjugation. And uh, please, please, please pick it up. It is called The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. Fabulous. It was so good. Margie and I have talked about that offline and we both love that book. It's so good. Oh, it's so good. I'm coming in with some Octavia Butler for you. Actually, this is one of those authors that I have never read, but I've been recommended so many times that I can't even count. And I was on Instagram last week and I... I follow the author Hank Green, and he went Mm -hmm. on and on about how great Dawn is by Octavia Butler. And so I was like, okay, this is my, this, it's about to snow. I'm getting a book. (laughs) So I picked it up. I started it. I'm midway through and I'm loving it. So for those of you who don't know, Octavia Butler passed away in 2006, where a lot of sci fi is very male dominated. She is sort of, you know, the groundbreaking African American a woman who wrote a bunch of books. She's most well-known for her uh, famous book, Kindred. 
but this is called the Lilith Brood Trilogy. It's three books. This is book one, Dawn. And so Lilith wakes up from a sleep that has been going on for centuries. She finds herself on a spaceship and she's being cared for by an alien race. They have kept her alive and saved others after a huge nuclear apocalypse on the earth. They've also taken it upon themselves to heal the earth. And now Lilith is going to help repopulate the earth. And so it opens up a lot of questions about how that's going to happen. So that's kind of the setup for this. And I'm excited to see where the trilogy goes. But so far, so good. I'm really enjoying it. I can't tell you how many people are in my ear saying how wonderful it is. So if you want a fun trilogy that's classic and, by the way, has been reissued recently in some beautiful new paperbacks. The artwork Mm -hmm. is gorgeous. Pick up Dawn by Octavia E. Butler. All right. And Jamie, what do you have for us? All right. I kind of have a twofer because I loved the first book in uh, this Dark Star trilogy, uh, Black Leopard, Red Wolf. So I'm going to talk about that one and then I'll also make a recommendation because that kind of feels too easy and a little bit like cheating, but (laughs) (laughs) I passionately love that book. So I'm going to talk about both. But one of my favorite lines in Black Leopard, Red Wolf is, who are you that demands that I make things clear to you? And that is exactly what this book is like. I was talking to James and Margie before we started and Marlon James just expects you to jump in with both feet and follow along as he just plows ahead. When I read him, I can see Beowulf. I can see Tolkien. I see Toni mm. Morrison, <laughs> Salman Rushdie, nice. mm-hmm. Black Panther. I mean, any comic book, he's clearly read everything. Um, Jeff Vandermeer, mm-hmm. African myths, old Af- African myths imagined that haven't even happened yet. <laughs> it's like he <laughs> sat down and went into a library and he read every single thing in the library and then just said, that's interesting. Uh, let's start again. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. That book really is about stories. It's a book of stories that's told by the narrator tracker to his inquisitor. And so I'm going to recommend a book of short stories to go along with this. And that is uh, Carmen Maria Machado's collection of unforgettable short stories her body and other parties. Like Marlon James, she kind of blurs the line between what's really literature and uh, what is genre fiction, what's fantasy. She, They both do a great job of blurring those distinctions. And all of her books, will sort her stories will sort of ring a bell with you. They'll feel familiar, but then she takes off in a completely unexpected direction most of the time. And so I think uh, any reader who can appreciate her Uh, I'm going to call it horrifying originality. (laughs) Um, They may be ready for Marlon James next. I don't want to give too much away because a lot of those stories have little, little neat twists in them, but. Oh, I really want to read that one. This, this, program wasn't supposed to build my TBR. I feel like I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> I think that book uh, was banned uh, within the last couple of years um, oh. by some schools too. So that's sort of timely with the, with all the news uh, yeah. just recently about mouse. Holy cow. Uh, so yeah, she's been added to that list of people who, you know, uh, have been banned. So that's always means that's a good book to read. Usually. There you go. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Well, Jamie, thanks for that. That is your TBR top off for this week on Poured Over the Barnes & Noble podcast. As always, I am James. You can follow me at Instagram on James Reading Books. And I'm Margie. You can follow me at Margie Book Brain. So uh, I'm Jamie. I'm in Leewood, Kansas, and we are at BN Leewood, L-E-A-W-O-O-D. Awesome. Thanks for listening, everybody. Jamie, thanks for joining us today, and we will talk to you next time. Happy reading. Bye. 
Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.